Welcome to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Josh Nicholas. Over the past 20 or so episodes, we've talked a fair amount about data. Big data, new data, weird data, all that. When we on the show want to understand what's going on in this realm, we talk to experts. And there's one man we've been going to more than most. And that's Professor Michael Blumenstein, head of the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's appeared in loads of shows in bits and pieces. But for this episode, we thought, we'll let him speak for himself. This entire episode is just going to be Michael. And it's going to start with one of his recent projects. So you, I was reading about a study that you were doing with the water here in Sydney. And one of the things that really caught my eye with that was the fact that, I mean, okay, if we think about the, the way water comes in, there's so many different things that go into that. You know, you've got the mains, you've got the individual pipes, you've got... That's right. So there's a lot of stuff happening there. And so there's a lot of data, there's a lot of inputs, there's lots of things going on. Yep. Is that a common thing when you're conducting a project? Like is, is, that, is that common where you just get so many different things all coming together? Yeah, I mean, recently, um, a lot of the projects we've we've done have some sort of element of that, and that is that there's multiple sources of data all used to be able to come up with a decision or some approach to predict something in the future. Um, and the only way, the power of it is the multiple sources. And the only problem we encounter sometimes in past projects I've done is that the, there's sparsity in some of those elements. And the, the, the challenge then is to reconcile all the different types of data sources when some are, are voluminous and some are, are, are totally sparse. And that's a, a bit of a challenge. What are the kind of data we're talking about? What are the kind of inputs that we're talking about? So, I mean, they're basically environmental type data. There's um, uh, social and economic type data. Um, and, you know, the and there's also sort of the hydrological data. And each one of those categories has got a lot of, you know, it's got subsets of different types of data. So an example of environmental data could be temperature, you know, and climate over a period of time. Mm. Um, the hydrological data could be rainfall, flood events, you know, things like that. And then you've got social slash economic data. You know, where are, you know, the regions that are, you know, have larger populations? Where do we know that things are growing quicker than other places? Um, economic prosperity in terms of agriculture and other type of, um, uh, you know, economic factors that, that will influence that region for the future. You bring all that together, boy, that's powerful. Actually, what, what sort of question would you be answering with well, the, in this particular project, um, it's actually um, a, a project in collaboration with the um, Department of Primary Industries, Water. Um, so it's actually statewide rather than just Sydney. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the type of question they want, to, they're really interested in, is having a, a great approach to water security. So um, when when someone says security, you know, all different sort of things conjure up in your mind. But it's about actually ensuring water supplies yeah. to communities and fresh, you know, clean healthy water supplies. And um, that's one part. The other part is that what they want to answer is, for the future, where can I actually create the right infrastructure to ensure future water security? So it's fine. You know, right now, everything's going okay, cool. Um, and, and, you know, communities are getting what they need. And, and that's actually a government's responsibility, actually, to, to provide that. Um, but, you know, what about the future? What would we, do we need to create and where? to ensure that yeah. moving forward, um, there's water security in those regions. 
Let, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm the minister. I want to go build something in five years. And we're just coming with a clean slate. Like we have absolutely no idea what's happened in Sydney over the last 200 years. How does that change to a situation where you do have all of this stuff? Like how, how does that change the kind of decision making? Have all of this, okay, we know what's failed and what's worked before. It's, a, it's huge empowerment to mm. ministers and people in, in uh, positions where they can make big decisions. The, the reality is that before, um, and you know, look, this is, happens all over the world, um, there's certain types of information that is provided to decision makers. Um, some of it is, you know, paper form, some of it's, you know, um, whatever is available to, and, and you know, some people use ex previous experience, mm. but maybe not a depth of experience, not, you know, using time series going back 100 years, but, you know, recent experience to make decisions based on, um, you know, what we know works. Uh, and, and that's fine. It's served us well. The, cha the real amazing thing right now is that people can use, well, okay, I've got this uh, data that I can get from multiple sources all together, which, which is factual. I mean, there, there is no way of changing it. You know, the, this is this is it. We're mm -hmm. extracting it from the source. Um, some of it goes back hundreds of years. Some of it's more recent. It can be things like rainfall. It can be things like the environment. It can be things like population and growth and trends in that space. And so what we're getting is actual information to provide the best and most accurate possible decisions in, in making things like, you know, how, what five million to five billion dollar piece of infrastructure we should build where and where. I mean, w isn't that amazing that we can actually do that now in that level of accuracy? If we look at, so I grew up in Taramara. If, if, if we look at Taramara, we can go back and say 40 years ago, there was a hell of a lot of rainfall in Taramara. Yep. So you're probably not going to be using the tap to water your lawn because it's just, it'll just be fine. Yep. And then we can go, wait a minute, now it's, it's happening less and less. People are, at the same time, people are using more and more water. And so we can probably project that out of and go, if this keeps going, yep. we're going to need more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, and, and that's really the thing, isn't it? That um, if we can go back to the... So, you know, a lot of the time there was anecdotal stuff, you know. Well, in that city, um, typically there's lots of rainfall. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Moving yeah. forward, um, we're not going to ever have to worry about drought situations and, and you know, we're, we're fine. Um, and, and, you know, it's anecdotal. It's it's just on the basis of memory sometimes or, or reports or whatever it may be. Here now, it, we've got, a, a in some cases, we've got a, um, a, a, a stream of data, uninterrupted in some cases, that can tell a story which is has far more nuances in it and, and, and gives us a little bit more information. But in most cases, it will probably tell the same story, yeah. but just a, a level of accuracy. You go back that far and you say, look, this is what we found to be the case in this region um, and we don't have to do anything. In other cases, you'll say, well, it goes back this far, and then guess what? It's closer to now, there's been some fluctuations. Perhaps there's been some drop-off. What are the factors in it affecting that? Why has there been less rainfall? Why um, is there is there less water in this area? And, oh, hang on a sec, but also we're, we're growing the industry of X in this place. Yeah. Maybe maybe the agricultural sector, maybe there's more growth in, in there. And, you know, and oh, oh, we've built... So there's been a dam built in, in recent history or there hasn't. Um, and, and, you know, so you, you've got all these factors coming into play and you say, well, okay, now for the future, I can predict pretty accurately based on that information using some sort of data analytics and machine learning what is going to happen in the next 10 years, even up to 20 years. You're sort of talking like it's a new thing that we can now sort of bring all these things together. And you just mentioned um, machine learning. So obviously we've had this gigantic leap forward recently in computing power. With So is, is that the reason why that we now have the computers and the 
the infrastructure to do this kind of thing? It's actually a number of reasons. Um, number one, government, and particularly New South Wales government, has been really good at having a policy now to say data is really important. Um, it's important for our decision-making. It's important for health. It's important for our, our economic prosperity. And an emphasis has been placed in that space to enable government departments now to you know look at their data, open it up, curate it for the future and be really responsible and um and and very uh you know using it strategically to to enable better things to happen for planning and and for for growth um that's number one the release of data the acknowledgement and realization of the power and importance of data it was always there so it's good that everyone's been keeping the data you know (laughs) that's cool but I don't know if people have been tapping into it to the same rate that they are now. That's number one. Number two, it, it has been that explosion of technology. The, the issue of having um, you know, com- computers now, you can basically have a supercomputer on your desk, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that could never happen before. Um, you have also got this amazing movement in the machine learning community, um, particularly around such areas as, you know, these are buzzwords, but deep learning and deep learning neural networks. We, always, we had neural networks in 1986. That's when the huge, actually started in 1943, but the huge leap in neural networks happened in 86. And that was like this big, this is when this thing called the backpropagation neural network got invented and it was applied to every problem you could think of because everyone was just trying to fit this in to solve problems. Yeah. But it couldn't do it on a grand scale. It was it was successful, but it was on, on smaller data sets and, and, and you know, it wasn't really solving big problems. With deep learning, we've finally got to a stage where actually now we've got huge data sets, um, we've got huge problems to solve, and now we've got the computing power, the actual hardware and the software now to, to, to do it. So this is like a lot of things are lining up and this is the perfect time for this to happen. You're listening to Think Digital Futures on 2SCR and we're chatting with Professor Michael Blumenstein from the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. So far, we've talked about the tech that has brought on this data revolution. But what about the data itself? Has that changed? When I think of big data, I think of Google, and I can imagine just this pristine data set from all of us typing in our search queries. Yep. Whereas so much of what you actually applying data to real life is messy. It's the mm. professor in wherever who had the picture in his journal, which is then useful to some guy in Tasmania. <laughs> it, it, that's sort of what I think. Is, is that really what data looks like in real life? Yeah, messy is a good description of it, I think. Um, it, it, and that's the, that's the challenge, you know. It's Yes, data has gotten bigger, okay? Firstly, because we, I mean, maybe it's just the fact that we've gotten better now, looking at bigger, I think big data sets were always there, but people would just go, oh, I don't even know how to start opening this up. You know, what do I open it in? You know, do I open it up in Excel? You know, what's, what do I do? You know, some people, it's on, sometimes backed up on tape drives. You know, what do I, you know. So you've got this, this um, huge amount of data that's in different formats and um, different levels of, um, of, you know, of capture and some, some as I said before, some are sparse, some, some are full and rich and and you've got this situation now where you've got to, you know the processing part is just as important as the actual machine learning part later down the track because what you want to do is get these data sets reconcile them mm. um you know line them up in terms of time series 
Uh, what do you do when there's bits missing? What do you do when there's too much in one data set when you're trying to match it up with another? So there, there are these challenges that have opened up. And yes, the you know, people store, you know, there's scientists in, in government. Uh, they've been storing it maybe in one department it's done one way and another department does another way. So yeah, there's inconsistency, but mm. that's where you know the processing before it gets to the stage of prediction and other things. That's a that's a challenge, and that's a research area in its own right. And and there's a lot of investment of time going to how do you work in that space. Well, do do you think that sort of processing, like people are now starting to realise, hey, look. So so for example, if you use the Australian Museum as an example, they've got a collection going back 160 years. And Pat, who who we were talking to, was telling us how, you know, it first started when they were collecting the samples. It's just whatever was written on the tag around the sample in the jar. And then a bit later, they had like a leather volume, which they would copy all that stuff out into. And then I think in like the 80s and 90s, they started getting volunteers to like put onto punch cards or whatever. It's like slowly, slowly extrapolated from that. And now it's on a computer database and Pat can just type in on a computer. So is that like a trend that's mirrored around like through society? Do you think, are you seeing that more where people suddenly realize, hey, look, we've got all this stuff. If we can make it usable, then... There's a bunch of stuff we can do. I really like that example of the story with the museum because um, it's actually, I, I believe, and this is from my own experience, unlike a lot of other cases, okay? <laughs> and the reason being is that in a museum, what you're trying to do is you're constantly trying to show things to the public. Now, I know that in museums, you know, 70% of stuff is, is sitting in a, yeah. you know, uh, in an attic or a basement somewhere and it's not shown to the public, but there needs to be a catalogue and sometimes things are changed, uh, you know, displays are changed, they move stuff in and out, but it's constantly being there for public view. And it's a perfect analogy. We're talking about, you know, um, bones or you know, fossils or whatever that need to be shown, you know, mm. and, it's con- and that's great. So that, what's happened is that the curation has started really basic with little ri- handwritten notes all the way to evolution to, you know, computer accessibility. Guess what? data sets that have been around for hundreds of years in certain areas, like in government and in private industry, um, no, they have not been curated in the same way. Why? Because there there wasn't, we haven't even identified until recently, I'm not saying like yesterday, but maybe in the last five, 10 years, that, that there's this richness of information that could help solve massive problems. So it would have been great to say, well, yeah, it's been curated all along the way, mm. evolving into this awesomely uh, computer accessible version in 2016 but no at, in many cases the data has been sitting there and people have been going oh, I suppose we might keep that because it might become useful someday yeah, we won't throw it out yeah. yeah and and, and another thing that's, that's only happened just recently is this trend of open data and um, you know just like a museum has a trend of opening their displays up from dot um, most government and industry have not opened their data up from dot in fact it's only recently it's only recently through Tim Berners-Lee, you know, the inventor of the internet, uh, who, who um, the real inventor of the web, uh, that actually, um, you know, had this big thing about, we've got to open up our data. It can be used for public good. And this whole idea of doing that now is spread to government agencies across mm. the world. And now they're going, hey, that data we've been keeping all those years, we can put it to good use. And so the curation is much harder when you haven't been um, looking after it um, uh, for all those years. I'm also starting to see, like, th- there's a number now around Sydney even, there's a number of data exchanges where you can you can buy and sell data or, of, of various kinds. And that also, I, I don't remember that three years ago. That that seems like a very new thing. So it does seem like this is now a more of a thing where 
like if we just talk about really in abstract terms, you could be doing your running your business over there that has nothing to do with mine, and then it's quite conceivable that I could learn something from whatever you're doing, even if we have nothing to do with each other. And that's a valuable thing. Hugely. hugely. Yeah. You know, th there's a couple of things that have happened. Connectivity, right? I mean, your business and mine, we could have been across the street and we'd never know what we were doing, you know? <laughs> not not really, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, all of a sudden, well, the web has opened stuff up. So, obviously, what you're doing is now publicly available because, you know, unless you're doing top secret stuff, you know, you want to promote your business and it, and, it's, and it's available for everyone to see on the web. Um, the other thing is that, you know, yeah, people are realizing that data in one business or one government agency might be really valuable to a totally different application. And again, um, without having that stuff opened up, no one would have known about it. You know, and you can see now that there's this huge incentive to run to run hackathons and GovHack and whatever hack you can imagine, Sid Hack. I mean, there's just so many of them now. And to be honest, you know, they're saturating because it appears that everyone thinks that's the answer to 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 the yes. same problem. But in a way, it's good because it's it's popularizing the concept of having data being accessible. Um, usually students are the candidates, you know, they go, oh, the students will love this, this hackathon, you know, because it's got this, and, and sometimes, you know, students are busy or whatever, they can't go to every single hackathon, but they are great problem solvers and they can actually, you know, delve yeah. in and, and solve problems for government and industry. And so, you know, so that openness, um, that connectivity has changed everything in, in, the, in recent, you know, last decade. You're listening to Think Digital Futures on 2SER, and we're chatting with Professor Michael Blumenstein, head of the School of Software from the University of Technology, Sydney. So far, we've talked a lot about where we are with data. We're in a boom, but what about the future? Technology has played a big part in where we are now, but there's a lot more on the horizon. I remember I was talking to a guy from Cisco at a conference once, and he was basically saying, like, you know, if we think about artificial intelligence and machine learning, that's like one aspect where we've got the we've got the computer grunt to go. And he was basically like the next wave, or he he sort of talked about it as like a new internet was IoT, was putting putting a sensor on everything. And he's like, if you marry those two together, sort of imagine what imagine what could happen. Is that sort of like the way you guys are thinking of it? Like where where we now have these amazing computers, we now have these amazing you know chips to, to do all this, and now if we start capturing more data from more sources, it's just going to unlock a lot of like we're going to ask so many more questions. Yeah, I've got a slightly different philosophy on mm -hmm. that. Um, I I do think the the major contribution in in this space in the IoT and data science space is the data science component, okay? Because the concept of being able to properly analyze the data and doing something with it is, is in my opinion, far more complicated with the machine learning and the artificial intelligence and all that sort of stuff than when you look at the, the sensors themselves. Sure, we could stick a sensor on everything, mm. um, but the problem with that is you've then got to develop technology that's smart enough to say, well, the sensor that that is emitting that information is actually not important at this point in time. Um, we actually don't want that sensor to emit stuff because then we've got data overload. So we've got to be real realistic here about how much data we can actually absorb, you know. <laughs> um, and, and you know, as humans, you know, we've evolved, you know, systems for hearing and visual systems that 
you know, specifically come about to um, filter out stuff mm. that we, we, we don't need to know and emphasize stuff that we do. And that's sort of the role of the artificial intelligence moving forward is, in its sense, technological evolution of bringing only the important stuff that we need to to bear, you know, when we when we solve a problem or we do. But, you know, I so I'm not totally sold on the idea of having, um, you know, sensors on absolutely everything and that will solve every yeah. problem in the world. I would suggest that targeted positioning of sensors for specific situations mm. and monitoring their on and off state, sucking the information you actually want to give you the answers you need, that's more effective. So, so for example, I remember I was reading about, I can't remember whether it was an actual research project or a proposal, but they were talking about basically using, you know, like Fitbits or wearables for people in who work in hospitals. Whereas currently, you know, they would go, okay, you're not allowed to work more than X number of hours because then it's unsafe. Whereas with a wearable, all of a sudden we can actually sort of, sort of track, okay, how exhausted is this person really not using just a vague hour. Is, yeah. is, it, is, it that, is it that kind of thing that's the potential? Absolutely, because now you've just, you've unlocked a problem mm. that, is a, that needed to be fixed, you know? Um, that, and look, I'm not saying that um, if something comes about from the machine learning and the IoT interacting and all this, sort of, that something new may not come about. It's quite possible that, you know, there are things you didn't think of before that may come about because of, um, the you know the acquisition of data that you never thought was useful you know and combined may make up a really great um, solution to something of interest to society or the world but yeah you, the the things that really right now are mattering uh, are the things where um, there's a, there's a problem it's being monitored um, via some sort of human estimation yeah. right and we are we are saying you know well this person looks tired. You know, but actually, if you could check their vitals, check how how their fluid intake is, you know, and, and that their their you know how their movements are, you know, mm. through video, <laughs> um, to see you know are they lethargic, you know, then you could really estimate, you know, is this person getting exhausted? Is this person healthy? And mm. of course, anything, any decision. This is my philosophy. Any decision that can be enacted on the basis of factual information, which is which means accurate data that is appropriately analysed is far better than an estimation mm -hmm. and particularly around areas of health, um, you know, mission critical systems, things where, you know, it matters that you're accurate. You know, if, if you can automate that and make it better through technology, that is the winner, you know, because the other stuff doesn't matter. You know, what, what mm -hmm. you want is to make the lives of people better and, and to make people safer and to make people more productive. And if you can do that through technology, that's, that's the main thing. We were talking about putting a chip in everything. So the thing, the thing that I'm, and, and you mentioned after that, that, you know, we may not necessarily know the usefulness of this. So, for example, I was talking to an um, academic, I can't remember his name, I think it was Dr. Beck, at, um, who lives in UTS Building 11. And he had some project where they were, they were looking at his wearable data. And one of his students thought, hey, wait, we're now in Building 11, which has sensors in the doors and all this stuff. And they married his wearable data to the, the sensors and the doors and everything. Like, that probably wasn't the use case whoever built the building had in mind. But that was a really interesting use of that data. So it's like, is it worthwhile just us embedding chips and everything just because we have no idea if in the future <laughs> it might be useful? 
Well, and you're you're probably referring to Dominic Beck, who's in who's in Billy Eleven, and he he's actually a, a really great researcher because he works in sort of the bioinformatics space, and and he's you know very much into the medical sphere, and he of some he's someone that knows more than anyone else of the type of things you can learn from data that about you know people's genomes and 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 you know their well-being mm. what can emerge from data that's never been explored before in large quantities you know and the example you give is is very interesting see i'm i'm sort of the type of person that says look just just put that extra bit in there just in case you know um a lot of people you know don't agree with that sort of thing because it's it's more money it's you know if you put more sensors in things and and just hope that they'll become useful someday. You know, is that really a useful, um, you know, um, endeavor to, to waste resources and so forth? But, but the example you give is is a good one. You know that, you know, there's sensors in the building. Uh, you know, there's about three thousand of them. Mm. Um, and then this person's come along and said, "Well, I've got wearables, and I'm going to marry them up." And this whole idea of marrying data and bringing data together to solve problems is is huge. That is a big endeavor on its own. That's a, that's a splinter area of its own that actually says, all right, um, we know what kind of value we can get from data X, Y, Z, but if we add ABC, which we never thought of, mm. what other insights can you bring to the equation? So um, to be honest, because of the decrease of cost of um, sensors and you know technology in general, it's probably going to be easier than ever before to embed you know systems and sensors all over the place. With very little cost, um, you know, I mean, you're obviously looking at things like, you know, where you're getting your power from to power this stuff, but really the actual technology itself is cheap. And um, that is fine. If you can work the other stuff out, then you've got very cheap, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, technology that can capture stuff. And then down the track, you could say, well, you know, now that I've had a think of that, you know, this data here is giving me this stuff. I would have loved to go back. Oh, that's right. I've got that sensor over there. And you bring the, the data together. But then you've also got to think about storage. And you got to, yeah. So yeah. There, look, there are issues. But um, I think we're going to get to a point where it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. And people may just do it just because they can, you know. Yeah. And, and they don't even think about necessarily the immediate research outcomes, but rather what the outcomes will be down the track when they actually have even more opportunity to analyze the data and to, and to do a proper uh, you know, uh, combing through it to understand it better and then marry it up. I mean, to be honest, that aspect there, bringing multiple sources of data together is is going to be really the saviour to a lot of problems. There's going to be a lot of solutions that require that type of, um, you know, uh, approach and, and the technology to do that properly. Picking up on that, do you think that this is going to unlock, like, or this, do you think this is going to make it easier to research a lot of these questions? Like, is this just going to unlock a like a new wave of kind of research in in some of these areas? Absolutely, look, it's already happening. I mean, I'm having people come up to me from different um, faculties, you know, where where I work at UTS, who that you know they're saying, you know, health people, um, people from law, business, they're all saying, you know, oh, you know, it would be really great if if we could harness this data. This could provide us with information we've never been able to get before mm. and that's that's the power of this whole data deluge is is to say look this data is coming in no one's looked at it before in the same way um, we now have the technology to, to analyze it to to make sense of it and in all those disciplines I mentioned and more there there are solutions to to be found and um, now we've got the, the process and the technology to be able to help those areas whether it be internally in a, in a research institution or a university 
or externally in industry and, and in the outside world. There are, there are problems that demand solutions, and we will now unlock the data, um, whether it's provided through public means or open data through government or maybe the private sector opening up their data once in a while. You know, we will get the solutions we need because we'll have the opportunity and the ability to analyze that data for good. So really exciting. And it's not just for the technically minded. It's the people from all over mm. that tend that will benefit from um, from every discipline that will benefit from this um, uh, you know, unlocking of the data. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a review. It really helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER and was produced by Jake Morecambe. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.